Well, good morning. Hope everyone's having a good summer and staying cool in the heat and not damaged by the hail and all the stuff that's part of living in this part of the world. Well, last week we uh, came to a turning point in Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 3. We talked about how this is where he shifts from defending the integrity of the gospel to then proving the power of the gospel. In other words, since the gospel came from God and is therefore true, then how did God design the gospel to have an impact on you? Paul believes that the Galatians, and this is the reason that he's writing the letter, he, he believes that the Galatians are at risk of forfeiting the blessing that God intended for them through the power of the gospel. Because in, instead of trusting in Christ as they once did when they came to faith, they are now relying on a man-centered wisdom. Their life is no longer directed by a truth that they once believed. They are trusting in their own wisdom to navigate life instead of trusting in God to lead the way. As you think about it, it's really a, a subtle compromise, but it's something that is all too common in the church today. In fact, I'm convinced that the words that Paul writes to the Galatians hundreds of years ago have just as much relevance to you and I in our world today. In fact, he could ask us the same questions that he asked them. He said, did you come to faith through following the law or by trusting in Christ? In other words, is salvation all about what you do for God or about what God has done for you? In the end, is this all about you or is it all about Him? And not only that, once you came to faith, do you then just call yourself a Christian, but in effect really set Him aside and then navigate life on your own? Or is true spiritual maturity a growing dependence upon Christ, trusting in Him way more, way, way more than you trust yourself. As Jesus said, apart from Him, we can do nothing. See, in our passage this morning, Paul will continue his argument by focusing our attention on the power of a promise. A promise from God that dramatically impacts how we live. It shifts us from this life of performance to a life of response. It's like what Ephesians tells us in Ephesians 2.10. It says, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. That's a life of response to what God has already done. So Paul is going to continue that thought, and he's going to talk about what it means to live a life of faith that the Lord has, one, led us to, but also continues to help us understand how we might faithfully walk within it. So it's not just about what the gospel has done in the past. It impacts how you live in the present. And we don't want to forfeit the blessing by setting that aside. So before we go to the Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we come to you this morning. We want to have hearts that are sensitive to the work of your Spirit to lead and guide us in ways that we cannot find on our own. Father, we admit as a people this morning that we are just as guilty as the Galatians with 
trying to live life on our own apart from a dependence upon you. But Lord, you continue to remind us that apart from you, we can do nothing. That our growth and maturity is based upon an increasing trust and dependence and surrender of our lives to you. So as we open up your word this morning, would you bring us into a greater clarity of that truth so that we might live more faithfully when we walk out of this place than when we did when we walked into this place. That's our prayer. Your will be done by the power of your spirit at work within us. Amen. If you would turn to Galatians chapter 3, uh, we'll look at uh, verse 15 where we left off last. Paul is continuing his argument there in verse 15, and so if you would follow along with me as I read. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He he did not say to his seed, referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Now Paul is going to turn to kind of a worldly example that most everyone could relate to. He's talking about a will that establishes an inheritance. So this is something you and I can understand as well, right? Their cultural practice was not all that different than ours. Paul is making that point that once a will is ratified, it cannot be modified by another party. For example, if somebody establishes an inheritance for his sons and he says, I want it to be spread equally between the two, okay? One of those sons can't later come and put an addendum to the will that says, well, what he really meant is I get 80 and you get 20, right? You can't do that. That's why Paul says in verse 15, once it has been ratified, no one ignores it or adds conditions to it. And then in verse 16, he adds to that example by turning to the promise that God made to Abraham, which, by the way, establishes an inheritance. So it's like a will, right? He says a promise that we saw back in verse 8. Verse 8 is where he reminds us that that promise to Abraham says that all the nations will be blessed through Abraham, that there would be an inheritance from God through Abraham, that would impact the world. So let's look at how that promise was ratified, because that's a key point that Paul is trying to make here. So if you would, turn to Genesis chapter 15. Go back to Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to start in verse 4 so that we can cover one of the verses that we looked at last week, because it's in this section. So if you want to, read along with me in Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, speaking of Abraham, saying, This man will not be your heir. Because remember, Abraham tried to offer a suggestion to God. Since we can't have children of our own, my wife is barren, maybe we should adopt. And, and God says, No, that's not what's going to happen. He says, This man will not be your heir, this adopted child. He says, But one who shall come 
forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. There's the promise. And then in verse 6, as we looked at last week, Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, oh, Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? How, how do I know that this is true, Lord? So God said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and he cut them in two and laid them each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds, and the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, so Abraham drove them away. Now, I want to pause here because I want you to understand that what is being described is a very typical ceremony in that ancient culture to ratify a covenant promise. And what is happening here is there's a sacrifice that is made, literally cut in half, each half laying on the other side so that there's a path in between. And normally what would happen is the two people entering into agreement pass through the sacrifices together, symbolically saying to one another, may it happen to me as has happened to this sacrifice if I do not uphold my promise. That's what this means. It's how this promise is being ratified. But there's something very unusual that takes place in this particular ceremony with Abraham. Look at verse 17. And it came about when the sun had set, and it was very dark, and this is when the ceremony would take place. Behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants, there it is again, I have given this land from the river Egypt as far as the river, the great river Euphrates. What's key here is that God alone, passes through the sacrifices. Not two people, as is normally the custom, but one person symbolizing a unilateral, unconditional covenant promise. A promise that depends purely and solely on the faithfulness of God. So God makes an unconditional promise that establishes an inheritance for Abraham's offspring, his descendants. But Paul makes an important grammatical clarification about this promise. He points to what is called a collective noun. So that's a word that can either be plural or singular, but it's the same word. I've given you, a, I got an example this morning, okay? This is a bag of seed. If I open this bag up, maybe and I pull out one, what is it called? Seed. This is a bag of seed, plural. This is seed, singular. It's called a collective noun. Same word can either be singular or plural. So Paul is using this as an example, and he's saying that when God made his promise to Abraham and his seed, his offspring, he meant singular, not Plural, one, not many. And more specifically, the one is named in our passage. Who is it? Jesus Christ. 
He says, look, go back to your passage. We need to look at this again. In verse 16, he says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say it into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is who? Jesus Christ. He is the one through whom the promise is made. Which means that the promise only applies to us if we are connected to Christ. That this promised inheritance is something that we must receive through the one to whom the promise was made. Does that make sense? And we saw that that promise was ratified in this ceremony as a unilateral promise from God. And so it is set. Which is why Paul goes on and says that the law came 430 years after the promise. Which takes us back to the beginning. Since the promise was ratified, then the law came in, coming 430 years later can't do anything to modify the original promise. Do you see his argument? So the promise of salvation as an inheritance of eternal life comes through Jesus Christ as the descendant of Abraham. And that inheritance is available to us only when we are connected to Christ. Only then can what rightfully belongs to Him be graciously given to us. And the law can do nothing to change or influence or modify that promise originally made by God and ratified through that covenant ceremony. Look at how he continues in verse 19. Good question. Why the law then? And he explains, he says, It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? May it never be. For if the law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the Scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise might be by faith in Jesus Christ, given to those who believe. So Paul's so good as he's developing in his argument because he's anticipating our questions, right? So he says, okay, if the inheritance comes through the promise, then what's the purpose of the law? Great question. With maybe a little bit of a surprising answer. He says the law was given because of transgression, because of sin. I want you to listen to how Paul explains this in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. You can listen, write it down, but it's Romans Chapter 7, verse 7. Listen to how Paul's explaining the effect of the law. And this is part of how he'll answer the question. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me, coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. 
I don't even know it exists. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. It exposed the reality. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved as a result of death. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy. The commandment is holy. It is righteous. It is good. Paul is saying that the law is holy, that is righteous, and it is good because it reveals the sin that is otherwise hidden in my heart. It's like the sign that we see when we're somewhere and it says, wet paint don't touch. What do we do? We touch just to make sure it's right. And Paul says, that's what the law did. He says, I didn't have a problem with coveting until the law said, thou shalt not covet. And then I realized I'm coveting all over the place, right? I have so much desire for things which I do not possess, which is coveting. And the law revealed what was hidden inside my heart. See, God gave us the law to prevent us from believing a lie. A lie that says, my heart is good. And therefore, I don't need God. The law exposes our sin. It reveals our need for a Savior. See, the law is holy. The law is righteous. The law is good because it points us to Jesus Christ. The one in whom the promise was ultimately fulfilled. I want you to notice, Paul makes the point to help us understand that the law had a limited time frame in which it served its purpose. Look again at verse 19. Why the, why the law then? It was added because of transgression, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. There's the word, until, until the seed, which we learn to be Jesus Christ, should come to whom the promise had been made. God gave the law to Israel through Moses, who is the mediator. It revealed their sin and their need for a Savior until that Savior arrived. Even Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but what? To fulfill it, right? And I think when we hear that sometimes, we think, well, Jesus fulfilled the law by keeping the law perfectly. And in a sense, that's true. He did, but that's not what it means to fulfill the law. Because Paul already told us, the law was not intended to bring life. Jesus did not obtain righteousness through perfect obedience. He lived in perfect obedience because he was already righteous. The law was intended to reveal our sin, but Jesus knew no sin. The law included a condemnation for those who fall short. And the Bible is clear. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why the law includes all this myriad of sacrifices as a visual representation of the consequences of sin. That there is a punishment that is attached, a penalty that must be paid for our sin. See, Jesus fulfilled the law by taking that punishment and condemnation that we deserved 
upon himself. His visible sacrifice on the cross was the result of our sin. And it was one sacrifice for the forgiveness of all sin, for all time, for all who believe. One sacrifice for all sin, for all time, for all who believe. That's why Paul said, as we talked about last week in verse 13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming that curse that we deserve. See, Jesus fulfilled the promise of a worldwide blessing by removing the condemnation by fulfilling the law that stood in the way. He took the punishment of death. He overcame the power of death so that He might give us the gift of eternal life. That's the inheritance. We are healed only through the inherited righteousness of Christ that we do not possess on our own. Does that make sense? Let me illustrate it this way. When I worked at uh, the hospital in the cancer center, there were some of the patients who would go through what was called a bone marrow transplant procedure. It's a really difficult procedure because what they had to do was give them large doses of chemotherapy. That chemotherapy killed cancer cells as well as normal cells. It depleted them down to almost nothing. Now, it in no way was intending to eliminate all the cancer cells because, number one, you wouldn't know if it did. Many of them are so small and undetectable, you can't perceive them, even through great imaging. Right, Stacy? So they exist. You're not eliminating all the cancer cells. Instead, what happens is you infuse that patient with new cells, usually from a donor, in hopes that those good, normal, healthy cells overtake and consume all the bad ones that might remain. So the healing is not from eliminating all the cancer cells. It's by infusing the patients with good, normal cells that overcome them because of what has been infused in them. In a similar way, the cure for sin is not found in the law because the, the law might reveal sin. It might in some ways restrain evil. But it does not remove sin any more than chemotherapy is able to remove all of the cancer. Just like we see in that example, our life has to be infused with His righteousness. He is the ultimate good that ultimately overcomes the power of sin in our life. see, we don't have the ability in and of ourselves to do anything to heal ourselves. We require an infusion of righteousness we do not possess on our own so that through His power in us, we overcome the power of sin through the blood of the cross and the work of the Spirit. See the difference? Now look at verse 23. Paul says, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law was, would become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. 
But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Paul wants us to understand here that the law was really not just this cruel master. It was actually a loving guardian. In the Greek culture, it was not uncommon for children to be raised by what was called a pedagogue. It's the very same word that Paul uses in verse 24 that we translate into the English word tutor. It's pedagogue. Now, a pedagogue was a person who was responsible for the care and supervision of a child. They were kind of a, a combination between a, a babysitter, a, a, a chaperone, a probation officer, okay? All of that combined into one. That's a, a pedagogue. And Paul is saying that the law is kind of like a pedagogue. God gave it to us to help us live within certain boundaries. And those boundaries were intended for our protection. As it says in verse 23, they kept us in custody, which kind of sounds like a, a prison guard a little bit, doesn't it? Which is actually part of what the law accomplished. It kept us locked up in the reality of our sin, preventing us from escaping into the deceptive freedom of selfish independence. It's deceptive because it's the place where we live and convince ourselves that we're good, and we really don't need God. The law is the reminder of how much we really need God, because it exposes our sin and the need for a Savior. But Paul goes on and says, even the pedagogue served a purpose for a limited period of time. When a child came of age, the pedagogue was no longer necessary. In fact, <laughs> It would not be healthy and good for a child to go into adulthood with that same type of guardianship. Okay? We would all look at that and say, ooh, that, that's not good. That's not healthy. Not only is it not good and, and not healthy, it would be incredibly unpleasant to live under constant discipline and condemnation for the things that you're doing wrong. Let me give you a quote from John Stott that I think takes all that we've been talking about in the law and does a great job of summarizing it to help us understand the ultimate purpose. Listen to what he says. He says, Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we long for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and for life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. Isn't that great? And Paul goes on in verse 25 and says, When faith has come, there is no longer a need for a tutor. God gave us the law so that we might turn to the gospel, so that we might put our faith in Christ, the one through whom the promise was fulfilled. Sin is no longer our master. The law is no longer our tutor. We are ruled by grace. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the promise. 
See, I think that's so key for you and I and what we're trying to understand about this passage. And I'm, I'm convinced it's what was important on Paul's heart as he was writing this letter to the Galatians. Because if we've been redeemed by Christ and yet still live under the burden of the law, we forfeit the blessing of grace. Not to suggest in any way that God removes the blessing of grace, but instead that blessing of grace no longer defines, it no longer influences or guides our life. Instead, we allow Satan to wield his deception by convincing us of our inadequacy. He highlights our sin just like the law, hoping that we live under the burden of guilt and shame, preventing us from becoming everything God created us to be. It's what plagues us, and we, we all know what this is like. It's what plagues us with this sense of not measuring up, of not being enough, of somehow being adequate or inadequate or insignificant, broken, unloved. But the promise of God, and this is what Paul wants us to understand, the promise of God tells us a very different story. It says that in Christ we are forgiven, set free from the power of sin's control. It says, it says that, that nothing Nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything imaginable can separate us from the love of God which is found through faith in Christ alone. That we are eternally secure, not because of our performance, but because of God's promise. That is a freedom that is only found when we live by the power of a promise. That is where the burden of guilt and shame is removed. That is where we learn. As the Bible tells us that we are adequate and equipped for every good work. That His grace is sufficient. And that His power is perfected in our weakness. Now, as you listen, that's a very different story, isn't it? And so the question for you and I to, to ask and answer in our own heart is, which story are we going to live by? The story of the promise or the burden of inadequacy? Are you adequate and equipped, eternally secure according to the promise of God, or are you hiding in your sin, buried under the burden of guilt and shame? Do you live under the condemnation of not measuring up, or do you experience the freedom of being covered by His grace? The good news of the gospel is that Christ has come to set you free. Not because of what you've done for Him, but because of what He's done for you. That's the power of the promise. And it has the power to transform our life if our life is lived according to the promise. It's what opens our heart to see what is true. It's what opens our eyes to walk in the light, to be healed by His love. That's the power of the promise. So as we close this morning, we're going to sing a song. And one of the things that I, I like about this song is that within the lyrics are some questions that we need to ask and answer that are directly related to what we just talked about in our passage this morning. Let me tell you some of those, and, and we'll sing them here in a little bit. It says this, Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? 
Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. And I think in light of what we've been looking at together in the Word this morning, Jesus is calling you and I to consider a promise that was made with you in mind. So as you sing these words, I want you to consider what it means to live according to a promise. Amen? If you would, go ahead and stand. Let's sing together. That treasure is the promise that has been fulfilled and made possible through Jesus Christ, the descendant of Abraham, the Savior of sinners, just like me and you. I'm convinced if we lived more according to the promise, that the power of the gospel would be unleashed in this world like the world has never known. Because there would be a promise of healing from brokenness, of recovery from trauma, of marriages, of families, of friendships and relationships because of what is made possible through Jesus Christ. And so let me encourage you to not let the enemy have his way because he wants to deceive us of just the opposite, to live under the burden of guilt and shame that you're inadequate, that you don't measure up, that you're not enough, and it's up to someone else because it's not you. And let me tell you this morning, that is not true. You are a child of God, purchased by the blood of Christ. You are forgiven and free. And you have a story to tell because you live according to the promise that was fulfilled. Now go be free, amen? Have a great day.